We come today to what is commonly known as the Passion Narrative, the final days of the life of Jesus and his journey to the cross. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, and we're heading to Mark chapter 14 and the beginning of this Passion Narrative. Now, we saw last week that Jesus had one final teaching moment with his disciples. He used that moment to reveal to them both the certainty of everything coming to the end and the fact that Jesus will return to gather up all those who believe in him and take them to the heavenly world that has been prepared for us. Clearly, if Jesus is to come back, then he must first leave. And he does this through the cruel death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, and then his final ascension into heaven. And I think the final teaching moment probably raised more questions than answers for the disciples. But for us, we were given the assurance that Jesus will return and he will rule and reign for eternity. Now, as we look at today's passage, there's really quite a lot in there. There are plots to kill, extravagant acts of love, betrayal and divine preparation. And all of this leads to a very special intimate moment with the disciples and Jesus, the institution of communion, or otherwise in, in some churches known as the breaking of bread. Now, as we work through the passage, I want you to see a few things. Firstly, there are always going to be those who truly hate all things Jesus. Secondly, there are always going to be those who truly are devoted to Jesus. Thirdly, there are those who will masquerade as the second, those who love Christ, but in actual fact are the first, those who hate Jesus. And finally, throughout all of these lessons, Jesus is going to show us humbly that he has given his life for all sinners so that we might all have an opportunity to find forgiveness from our sin and to be set free from it. This entire passage really builds towards the sacrifice of Jesus. So it's important for us to work through the passage so that we build towards almost that crescendo of Jesus and his sacrifice before the people for love's sake. So we're going to begin in our passage, Mark chapter 14 and looking from verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Well, we're given a timestamp to our passage today and to when all of this occurred. It was just before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Passover was the most significant of three annual feasts, with the other two being Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover was a one-day event, and in modern day, it can be placed on roughly April 14th, although we all know that our calendars do change almost yearly uh, in terms of where Easter sits. Passover is first mentioned in Exodus 12, where the Lord provides salvation for the Israelites through means of a lamb's blood. The lamb's blood was put on the doorposts and lintel of the door. And when the Lord came over the people, he would pass over the houses that had blood on the door. And therefore, salvation was brought to that household and no death would occur. Now, the annual Passover day was a remembrance of that salvation brought to the people in Exodus 12. It was an annual celebration that the people have indeed been saved by the Lord. 
Yet it also had a, a bit of an agricultural significance as well because Passover marked the barley harvest in the region. So not only is it a, a remembrance of salvation, but really a celebration of provision to the people. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is often confused with the Passover because the Feast of Unleavened Bread happens at the same time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week-long celebration and day one is the Passover. All leaven is removed from the house as the people were reminded that the Lord took them through the wilderness and provided for their needs to the promised land. So this was a significant moment in the annual life of the Jewish people. You know, it was at this moment, this significant Passover moment, this unleavened bread feast moment, that the chief priests, those who could go into the holy place, the scribes, those responsible for writing and rewriting the laws, truly hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. They had one issue though. With the Passover and this week-long festival, Jerusalem was overrun with pilgrims. Some estimates have it at about 3 million people had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they wanted the people on their side. They didn't want a mob against the leadership. They wanted the people to agree with them as they sought the death of Christ. So right at the start of the Passion narrative, we have Jesus in danger, not from an angry mob, but from the very religious leaders that should have embraced him as the Messiah. I was recently talking to someone and we mentioned something about faith and about leaders. And one of the things we said was we should never assume that the rank of leader in the context of the church or any Christian organization means that that individual is a Christian in full obedience to God. The devil can have leaders in the church, in Christian organizations, in the temple who seek the demise of the gospel. Verse three, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Jesus wasn't staying in Jerusalem. Instead, he was in a village just outside Jerusalem called Bethany. This little village was home of Mary and Martha and is also the place that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus is in the home of Simon. And we don't know anything about this Simon, but many commentators would suggest that possibly it was the previous owner of the house of Mary or even a family member of Mary and Jesus is reclining at the table in Mary's house. We can only speculate this, but certainly it gives an explanation of why we don't know anything about Simon. Now, clearly it was time for a meal, for it was common not to sit at a table because they didn't really have dining tables and chairs like we have today, but they reclined or they relaxed at a table that is just a few inches off the ground and they would have had a meal together. And it was at that time when the group of individuals that were in this home were coming to a meal that a woman comes. And it seems from the text that she was a stranger. We're not told in this text who she is. But with her is an alabaster flask. Alabaster was a type of material used to make a marble-like jar and it contained perfume in it. It was common for a young woman to be given an alabaster flask 
with an expensive perfume in it upon the coming of age. It showed the, the family wealth and the status. The, the greater wealth of the family, the more expensive the perfume. The more expensive this alabaster flask was, clearly the greater the name of the family was. Now we're told contained, <coughs> excuse me, in this woman's alabaster box, alabaster flask, was pure nard. Now nard was one of the most precious perfumes of the time. It comes all the way from India and it was extremely rare in this region. The woman that had this flask clearly had come from a wealthy and prestigious family. Now it was commonplace to use this perfume for the guest of honour. A few drops would be placed on the head of the guest of honour and it signified that the home was truly blessed by their presence at the meal or in the time at the home. What occurred in this instance was unheard of. The women broke the flask and the entire contents was poured over the head of Jesus. He was anointed not by just a few drops, but the most expensive, most precious perfume was entirely poured over his head. Really is quite an incredible scene to picture. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. We're not sure who the some are. Most presume it must have been some of the disciples reclining at the table with Jesus. Their response, though, was of disgust at this anointing of Jesus. They viewed it as a shameful extravagance. The perfume used was worth a whole year's salary, a whole year's wages. So it should have been sold and the proceeds should have been given to the poor. More than simply being disgusted and disagreeing with the action though, they moved to rebuking her actions. What is a, a peaceful moment, a peaceful setting, and what was meant to be a blessing in terms of anointment had become a disagreement, an unrest in this house. And all thanks to an extravagant anointing of Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In these few verses, Jesus does four things. The first thing is that he protects the woman. Notice his clear command, leave her alone. The arguments were to stop. The rebuking of her actions were to be silenced. And in a world where men often stay silent when women are mistreated, what an example that Jesus gives us here. He protects her from unjust rebukes from what we assume is his friends, his disciples. The second thing that Jesus does is he encourages. He declares that she has done a beautiful thing. Now the word used for beautiful in the Greek here is kalos, which can mean lovely or winsome. This, just, this wasn't just a good thing that she had done. This was a lovely, a beautiful, a winsome thing that she had done. 
More than that, when you put it into the context as to what is about to happen in the Passion narrative, this was the last kind and lovely thing that Jesus experienced before his death. Do you see the significance there? The last kind and lovely and beautiful thing that Jesus experienced before his death. The third response of Jesus was to challenge or to rebuke those who were complaining. Notice verse 7, Jesus actually quotes from Deuteronomy 15, 11, for they will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. There is always going to be poor people in our lands and it should be a daily occurrence to help them in their needs. Yet Jesus won't always be with them. He won't be there for much longer. We know he is about to go to the cross for them. And here is where the truly wonderful thing is. Something I I doubt that the woman was even aware of. She was anointing Jesus as the guest of honour, but she was anointing him for his death and his burial. She was preparing his earthly body for the greatest show of love that the world has ever seen. She was given an incredible privilege to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who would die for the sake of mankind. But there is a fourth response from Jesus, and that was one of proclamation, both the extravagance and the gospel. Why is it that she'll always be remembered for these actions? Why is it that 2,000 years later, we are speaking about her actions? Why is it our story is going to be told for generations upon generation? Because of her extravagant action. Because that showed extravagant love. And that is exactly what Jesus was going to do on the cross. He was going to extravagantly give his life for the sake of others, just as this nard was given for Jesus. So in contrast to the complainers, Jesus boldly shows that this moment is one of great significance and one that should be praised. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. What a contrast between the woman anointing Jesus, blessing Jesus, showing that he is the guest of honour, and Judas Iscariot. We go from extravagant actions to dreadful betrayal. And notice the word then. It was after these actions, after the actions of the woman, that Judas hunts out the chief priests. I wonder, was he frustrated that he couldn't get a cut of the money if the alabaster flask was sold? Did he hate the extravagance of it? Or because he gained nothing from it? We certainly get a hint to all of this in John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put into it. You see, for Judas, it was all about the money because he could get the money himself. And when we go to the other gospel accounts, we see that he always had a plan. Matthew 26, 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. 
This was not a fleeting thought of betrayal. This was planned out. He planned to seek out the chief priests and to barter with them. He bartered a deal for the betrayal of Jesus. He sought money. And I think it particularly interesting that he was given 30 pieces of silver. Because in Exodus 21, 32, we read, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. The blood price for a slave, or the value of life, was deemed to be 30 pieces of silver. Judas had bartered a deal to receive the equivalent financially to the life of Jesus. This was not just about betrayal. This was being rewarded for the death of Jesus. Judas had blood on his hands. What an incredible contrast we have here. The love and devotion and extravagance of the woman anointing Jesus and the greed and betrayal of Judas. It really is a picture of the two ways that we can respond to Jesus in complete adoration as to who he is or complete rejection to the message that he shares. There really isn't much middle ground, is there? Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It seems we've moved on since the start of the passage and we're now on the first day of the week-long feast, the first day indeed being Passover. Now when it comes to the day of Passover, there were certain things that needed to be prepared. There was the ceremonial search for leaven in the house. The homeowner would light a torch and would shine it on all the dark places of the house, ceremonially seeking out the leaven of the house so that it can be removed. Then there was the Passover lamb that needed to be sacrificed and prepared in the manner that God had set before the people in the Old Testament. Finally, we have the table that needed to be prepared with various key elements needed, salt water, herbs, wine, unleavened bread, and of course, the Passover lamb. So the question on the disciples' minds, probably a day or two after this situation with the alabaster flask was, where are we going to do all the preparation? Where are we going to eat the Passover meal? Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, and there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. We'll soon be celebrating Palm Sunday and there, these verses kind of remind us of that story where Jesus prepared in advance what for the disciples what they were to do. He said before them, go and find this individual who'll have a donkey, bring that donkey to me. Here Jesus seems to be doing the same thing. Go into the town, go and find this person, they'll take you to the upper room. Jesus seems to have divine knowledge of the plan that is ahead. Maybe Jesus had prepared in advance because he asks, where is my guest room? Maybe Jesus had prepared a booking in advance for the Passover and this was purely just guiding his disciples to sort it out. Or another way of looking at it is that Jesus is a rabbi and it was commonplace for rabbis to go to upper rooms to teach their disciples. So maybe Jesus was simply being viewed as a rabbi here and an upper room would have been prepared for him. 
Either way, as to whether Jesus physically prepared this or this was divinely seen through the actions that Jesus describes, what is clear is that the disciples had no earthly knowledge of what to do. Jesus had a plan and the Passover meal would be shared with his disciples in the upper room of this house. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. It is striking, is it not, that Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. And he knew it started with one of his disciples betraying him. He knew it. And even more striking, he knew which one would betray him. He could have left. He could have saved himself. He could have outed Judas right there and saved himself. But he didn't. Jesus reclined at the table, knowing that he would soon be betrayed. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If you dig a little bit deeper behind the words here, you can see what's happening. Jesus is giving Judas one last opportunity to not go ahead with what he has planned. At this point, Judas has taken money from the coffers and he's betrayed Jesus in his mind, but he has yet to action out that betrayal to the chief priests in giving the information that they were seeking. Jesus is giving him a warning and with it a plea to not go through with it. The warning is clear. If you're about to do what I know you're going to do, it is so horrendous that it would be better if you never existed. No good will ever outdo the action of betraying Jesus. So what compassion we see here from Jesus to give Judas an out, to show one last time that there is hope and he can make a better choice. And this is the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. He desires us to be saved. He desires us to be faithful. He desires for us to be forgiven. And he does not force it upon us. He gives a compassionate plea. Do not do this. Know the warning. Know the risks of what you're about to do. But before moving on to the climax of where this whole passage leads, remember I said it builds and it builds and it builds. Notice the disciples. Sorrowful but only over one thing, and that one thing as to who is at fault. Notice they don't inquire to how Jesus is, or what the betrayal will lead to, or whether Jesus is okay. They simply want to know which one is at fault. And they have remained throughout this gospel account as selfish as they were at the start. And what an ugly behavior selfishness is, when all you can think about is, is yourself? Is it me? Is, am I at risk? Do you look against me? And that sorrowful only seeking your own heart. It shows such a lack of care for others and their needs. And in this moment, the disciples show such a lack of care for our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the point where the whole passage builds towards. The threats of murder, the extravagant anointing, the betrayal and the preparation and the institution of communion is building to this point. It all plays a part. Every element has a purpose that builds to this point. And as we go through these final verses of today's passage, I want you to see how the twists and turns put together this real intimate and special and significant moment of communion. 
verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, these are well-known words for faithful believers, words spoken at communion services all around the world. Jesus declares, just as this bread is broken, so my body will be broken. Just as this cup flows with wine, so my body will flow with blood spilled for you. He uses this meal to show what will come to pass. In this moment, Jesus explicitly tells the disciples that the betrayal of Judas would lead to his death, but his death would mean something. I want to, for a moment, concentrate on the cup and what Jesus declares it symbolises. The blood of Jesus would be shed, and in the shedding, a covenant is given. Just like the blood of the Lamb that protected the people in Exodus 12, so now, on this Passover day, on this annual celebration, Jesus declares that his blood will bring salvation to the people. Faith in Christ is salvation. The blood of Christ is the saving power. Do you see the desire of the leaders to murder Jesus would in fact bring about the very covenantal bloodshed that the people needed. Let me just repeat that so you get the significance here. The desire of the leaders to murder Jesus would in fact bring about the very covenantal bloodshed that the people needed. The betrayal of Judas would bring about the sacrifice needed to atone for sins for eternity. The anointing of Jesus was preparation for his cruel death where his body would be killed and his blood would be shed. The whole passage builds to this wonderful promise. In the death of Jesus and his blood shed, you will find salvation if you but have faith. This is why we need to do the work in the passage, for such meaning is invested into these verses. Salvation belongs to Jesus and it's found in nobody else. It's found through his eternal sacrifice and it came about even though Satan threw everything he had at Jesus. He threw leaders who wanted to murder him. He threw Judas who wanted to betray him. He threw the complication of the three million people in Jerusalem at him. Yet victory is in Jesus because what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And that is the wonder of this passage. I have about a few minutes left with you today, so let me try and apply these verses directly to your week ahead and to your very lives. And so here's the first thing we learn for this wonderful passage. Extravagance, not stingy. Extravagance, not stingy. There are two pictures of extravagance in our passage. First, the anointing of Jesus, where everything was given. Second, the picture of Christ's death, where his entire person was given as a sacrifice needed to atone for sins. In both circumstances, the question was not, how little can I get away with? How little of this perfume can I use? Can I get away from the cross? Can I do it in any other way that doesn't require my death? No, it wasn't how little can I get away with. It was how can I give everything to the Lord? 
All too often, Christians are known for being stingy. We have phrasing like being good stewards. And I wonder if that's what the complainers were using in this passage as well. And we judge what we think is deserving of our giving, of our time and of our, of our sacrifice. Is this worth it? Is, is it worth giving to this? Yet look at what we see in this passage. Not how little can we get away with, but how much we can possibly give. Christian living should be extravagant, but not for ourselves, but for others. You see, this is what the incredible thing is in our current society. We're being taught that we can have everything and we can have it now. No, what scripture teaches us is that extravagance is taking everything we have and giving it to others, finding opportunity to truly be extravagant in our giving. When a need arises, our attitude should be one of, how can I knock this need out of the park and bless this individual? When the Lord calls on us to do something, it's not how can I get this over and done with and just get quickly through it. It's how can I give my all to it? Let me just give you two very quick examples of what I'm meaning here. There was a time in my own family's life where we had very, very little and there was a real struggle financially. I got a phone call from someone in the church. This was several years ago. They asked, what are you eating tonight? I thought that was an odd question, talking about dinner time. And I said, well, I don't know, I, I guess chicken. And his response was one I will never forget. He said, I've put money in your bank account this afternoon. Go eat steak and enjoy an ice cream with your girls. You see, the food element doesn't really matter here. It doesn't matter what we were eating or what he was suggesting. What matters is his heart. This man was not looking at how little he could give us. He was looking at how he could extravagantly bless us as servants of Christ Jesus. And I have never forgotten in that moment, someone gave their all, not their little. Another example, just in this last week, we had Steph McLeod come and give his testimony on a Zoom event for our church. What we had agreed is maybe he would come and give his testimony, answer a few questions, and maybe if there was time, give us a song. And if you were present on that Zoom evening, you will know that we had a mini concert and he just went on and on and we worshiped together. He could have easily said no. He even told us before he had been filming and recording all day, but instead he extravagantly gave us a wonderful personal private concert and we got to celebrate God and praise Jesus in that moment. Let me ask you this question and this is the point. Are you known as a stingy complainer or the extravagant giver? I certainly know which one I want to be. I want to be like Jesus, one who is willing to give everything for the sake of others. My second point from the passage today is that every moment serves a purpose. Every moment serves a purpose. Did you see how the passage developed up to the point of communion? Did you see how each element played a part? Well, your life this week is exactly the same. Each day this week, each activity, each conversation is part of God's plan to develop, to nurture and to grow your faith. And what a blessing it is when we truly recognize that God is at work in everything. That day you were late for work, well, that was part of God's plan. That time when a plan fell through, that was part of God's plan. This very sermon you're listening to right now is part of God's plan for your life. And the really exciting bit is what it will all lead to. 
You see, it's not exciting to read some drama of the chief priest seeking the murder of Jesus, but what's exciting is to know that in that murder, the covenantal blood was shed and that we are set free from our sins in faith in Christ. The exciting bit is what it's all leading to. Again, another example, I remember taking a nine-hour road trip to visit a church when we were in the States. I was looking forward to uh, listening to a particular preacher. I'd listened to him online for years and it would be lovely just to see him and hear from him in person. When we arrived, it turned out we were a week too early and he was still on sabbatical and he would not be preaching. I have to admit, I was pretty gutted in that moment. The sermon was good though. The guy preached on Psalm 150 and we were left blessed, but it certainly wasn't the guy I was hoping for. But here is the kicker. Here is what it's all leading to, what it all builds to, what the purpose was. Because that Psalm 150 sermon touched my mother to give up her career and head to New Tribes Mission and to serve the Lord full time. The exciting part is rarely in that daily plan of that nine hour road trip and that disappointment of not something not working. The exciting part is what God is going to do with it. And in that moment, God took someone out of secular work and placed them in the Lord's ministry to serve him each day. So I want you to know this. Every moment of this week has a purpose. So get excited because God is taking you somewhere. It's not in the everyday, the humdrum, the decisions, the taking the kids to school and back again, the organizing of the household finances, the meal plan of the week. Yes, that doesn't sound exciting, but each part is building towards something. So know that God is taking you somewhere. Thirdly, faith, not credentials. Faith, not credentials. A chief priest, yet wanting to kill Jesus. A scribe, yet wanting to kill Jesus. A disciple, yet complains. A disciple, yet betrays. A group of disciples, yet a group of selfish individuals. Do you see that status of position and credentials mean absolutely nothing when it comes to Jesus and faithfulness to him? Apply that to yourself. Who are you? A leader, a business owner, a preacher, a well-respected individual, a ministry leader, dare I say a church leader or a pastor? Let me say this, none of those titles, none of those credentials are who you are. Credentials do not define who you are. Faith does. You're either in Christ or against Christ. Let me ask you again, and then let me give you the resounding answer of a believer in Christ. To the question, who are you? We don't go to credentials. We give a resounding cry. I'm a child of God, bought by the precious blood of Jesus. I'm a co-heir to the throne of Christ and a citizen of heaven. By faith, I'm a brother in Christ to millions of Christians around the world. I'm redeemed. I'm set free. I'm precious in the eyes of God. I am an ambassador for the gospel that saved me. I'm a herald to the message that sets us free from sin. And fundamentally, I'm living as an example of salvation in Christ. That is who I am. I am. It is not about credentials because we have seen in this passage even the, the right leaders, the, the ones with all the credentials, were the deepest level of sinners. It is faith that defines us. Folks, those are the only credentials that matter. Get over ourselves and recognize that in Christ is the only thing that truly matters.
Uh, fourth and finally, and with this I will finish up, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. I was really struck by the victory in Jesus in this passage. The blood of Christ, the, the saving covenant, the atoning sacrifice how he defeats the murderers, how he defeats those who betray him, how he defeats the complainers. Jesus has a plan and it is gonna happen and there's gonna be victory from his death. So all that led me to an old song called Victory in Jesus. And so I simply want to close today's sermon by reading some of the lines of that song. And I believe these are truly precious words that we can hold on to this week. Let me read them out. I heard an old, old story, how a saviour came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, how he made the lame to walk, again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all of my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Praise be to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you that your word always builds to that victory in Jesus. We pray that we would apply it to our lives this week, that we would be extravagant in our giving, that we would be known as generous, not stingy. Father, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would be in Christ, that we would celebrate our citizenship in heaven, not our titles or our roles on this earth. Father, we pray that we would shout that victory of Jesus, that we would share it to the nations, that we would be brothers and sisters in Christ that genuinely have a broken heart for the lost. And Father, we pray that we would be like Jesus as he was with Judas, that we would give hope, that we would give that last chance, that we would give that next chance, that we would bring people to know that there is a better decision, there is a better thing they can do with their life in surrendering it to Jesus. And Father, we pray that this week we would walk with our heads held high, not because of anything we have done, but because we know in every single thing in this week, there is a plan and purpose and our Lord Jesus is taking us somewhere. So Father, we pray that we would have every ounce of faith in our lives this week and that we would get excited because by next Sunday, you'll have done something in our lives. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ who brings victory to our very souls. Amen.